Welcome to the latest episode of the Tech Post podcast with me, Shawnee Ryan, where we cover what's happening in the world of technology. Tech Post is brought to you in association with Limerick City Community Radio. If you have any topics you want covered, please get in touch with us by emailing techpost at limerickpost.ie. I'm going to start off this week with um, a podcast that I regularly listen to called Cautionary Tales. It's presented by uh, Tim Harford, published by Pushkin Industries. And uh, this episode was just so good. And so it was about a guy called Claude Shannon. And if you love tech as much as I do, I think you're going to love this podcast. So let's get straight into it. Uh, I'm delighted that Pushkin have agreed to let me uh, play this for you. Uh, So here we go. Let's just get straight into it and uh, have a listen. I think you're going to love this. It would be hard to think of a better example of a game of chance than roulette. Beneath the romantic French terminology and the myriad rules of etiquette, each spin of the roulette wheel is utterly random. The casino's advantage is small, but it cannot be overcome. The game is remorseless. Over the long haul, the only way to win is not to play. Or is it? One day in August 1961, Claude and Betty Shannon stroll up to a roulette table in Las Vegas, pretending not to know their companions, Ed and Vivian Thorpe. Claude and the ladies are nervous, but they don't show it. Ed Thorpe isn't nervous. He's excited. He's still in his twenties, but he's an old hand in the casinos. Claude Shannon stands right by the wheel. He's 45 years old slim and good-looking, with fine cheekbones and dark eyebrows. He's misdirecting the attention of the floor manager by scribbling down numbers. He looks like he's got some crazy system that will inevitably bankrupt him. Thorpe is at the other end of the table, far from the wheel and far from Shannon. He has dark hair, a round face and a smile. He's having fun, placing his bets with the confidence of a man who knows the unbeatable game is about to be beaten. This is a defining moment in a project that has been quietly ticking over for a year. When it began, Thorpe and Shannon didn't know each other. Edward O. Thorpe was a junior mathematics instructor at MIT. Claude Shannon was the greatest computer scientist in the world. Ed Thorpe had a plan to beat roulette and he needed Shannon to help him. Systems to beat roulette are like blueprints for perpetual motion machines or formulas to turn lead into gold. They're absurd, the pseudoscientific obsessions of cranks. And Claude Shannon's secretary had already warned Thorpe that Professor Shannon doesn't spend time on topics or people that don't interest him. Shannon was a legendary figure. People in his field talked about Shannon the way physicists talk about Albert Einstein. What Ed Thorpe was doing was much like buttonholing Einstein and saying, Hey Albert, I've got a surefire scheme for beating the bookies at the racetrack. An unknown young mathematician, a patently futile goal, Claude Shannon, the computing legend, didn't hesitate. Take a seat, he said to Ed Thorpe. We have a lot to talk about. I'm Tim Harford, and you're listening to Cautionary Tales. Repeat, please. Place some slower for the present. How do you receive? Send slower. Please say if you can read this. Can you read this? Yes. How are signals? Do you receive? Please send something. Please send V's and B's. How are signals? Those messages from 1858 represent a full day of attempted conversation via Morse code through a cable lying three miles under the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. The cable had been enormously expensive and, as you might guess, it wasn't really working. In an attempt to boost the signal, the project's engineer, a man called Wildman Whitehouse, cranked up the voltage. The cable melted. It had survived 
only 28 days. Over the years, telegraph engineers figured out how to work around the problem of noise on the line. They built stronger cables with better insulation and more sensitive detectors at the far end. But nobody fully solved the problem of noise. Nobody even fully understood it. Not until, nearly a century later, along came Claude Shannon. Shannon's career was defined by two thunderbolts of insight. When he was 21, in 1938, his master's thesis showed that any logical statement could be evaluated by a machine, with true or false being represented by switches being open or closed. Those dots and dashes of Morse code were just a hint at the possibilities, armed only with open or closed, on or off, dot or dash, zero or one, machines could perform any operation in mathematics or logic. And rather than merely proving the point in abstract, Shannon, who was barely old enough to buy a beer, showed electrical engineers how to efficiently build a logic machine. Claude Shannon had bridged the vast gap between electrical wiring diagrams and thought itself, unlocking the age of the digital computer. Shannon's second Thunderbolt was published in 1948 when he was working at Bell Labs alongside several future Nobel Prize winners, including the team that invented the transistor. Shannon returned to the deep problem underlying the transatlantic cable fiasco. He created a unified mathematical theory of transmitting information. Some of that theory seems obvious from the viewpoint of the 21st century, we now take it for granted that information, bits and bytes and gigabytes, might represent anything. A computer game, or a spreadsheet, or music, or pornography. But that idea started with Shannon. Before him, researchers only dimly grasped the distinction between the meaning of a message and the quantity of information it contained. The idea of compressing a file so that it took up less space were Shannon's. And so too was the utterly radical idea that any amount of noise on a line could be overcome. You didn't do that by cranking up the voltage and melting the undersea cable, nor did you need to build a better listening device or a thicker cable. No matter how much distortion there was, you could convey any message if you had enough patience. All you had to do was add redundancy to the data. It's the inverse of compressing a file. You add extra data to make the message more likely to be recoverable, even in the presence of interference. That idea was unthinkable, right up to the point that Claude Shannon proved how to do it. This new theory of information was revolutionary, and so elegant and general that it could be applied to anything from the internet to genetic information in DNA even though the internet did not then exist and the double helix structure of DNA had not yet been discovered. Shannon wasn't merely ahead of his time. He was the one who had wound the clock and set it running. All this, and he'd barely turned 30. So what did Shannon do for an encore? Here's a description from his biographers, Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman, of Shannon's work ethic. Shannon arrived late, if at all, and often spent the day absorbed in games of chess and hex in the common areas. When not besting his colleagues at board games, he would be found piloting a unicycle through Bell Labs' narrow passageways, occasionally while juggling. Sometimes he would pogo-stick his way around the Bell Labs campus, much to the consternation, we imagine, of the people who signed his paychecks. Shannon wasn't goofing off completely, he often worked hard, but the projects he worked on seemed whimsical. For example, he spent many hours at home playing with a colossal erector set. He built a robot mouse that could explore a maze, and by trial and error on the first attempt, learn how to reach its target flawlessly on the second run. The robot mouse was clever and thought-provoking, and it might have represented real progress towards artificial intelligence if Shannon had persisted with it, but he didn't. Shannon built perhaps the first chess-playing computer. 
albeit one that could play only a radically simplified setup, the endgame with six pieces. He published a theoretical paper on computer chess. It could have been the start of something, but again, he lost interest. It seemed a shame. If anyone could make progress with computer chess, surely it was Shannon. He was good. Shannon once travelled to Moscow and played chess with three-time world champion Mikhail Botvinnik, and he made Botvinnik sweat. When it wasn't chess, it was juggling. Shannon tried to figure out how to juggle upside down by hanging from the ceiling and bouncing the balls off the floor. He built juggling robots too, and a variety of machines designed to play abstract games, such as Hex, and a Rubik's Cube-solving robot, and the juggleometer, and a flamethrowing trumpet, and the ultimate machine. The ultimate machine is a box with a switch and a trapdoor. When you flick the switch to turn it on, a robot finger pops out of the trapdoor and flips the switch back again to turn itself off. Shannon made giant styrofoam shoes so he could walk on water at a nearby lake. After Shannon learned to juggle, ride a unicycle and walk a tightrope, he formulated the aim of juggling on a unicycle on a tightrope. Alas, he never got further than two out of three. Claude Shannon's boss, Henry Pollock, said, Shannon has earned the right to be non-productive. And of course he had. But come on, you're a genius, Claude. You're 33 years old. You're the Einstein of computer science. And you're unicycling, pogoing and playing board games? Shannon never again published anything like his theory of information. He never even came close. Once, he promised the editor of Scientific American an article on the physics of juggling. If that didn't seem trivial enough, he followed it up with an unapologetic letter. You probably think I've been frittering, I say frittering away my time while my juggling paper is languishing on the shelf. This is only half true. I have come to two conclusions recently. One, I'm a better poet than scientist. Two, Scientific American should have a poetry column. Instead of his juggling research, Shannon enclosed a 70-line poem about Rubik's Cubes to be sung to the tune of Tarara Bumdier. He added, I'm still working on the juggling paper. Shannon never finished it. Not only was he not producing thunderbolts, he wasn't even producing a study of juggling. Perhaps we should not be surprised that Claude Shannon was happy to put aside serious research when the young mathematician Ed Thorpe approached him for help in hacking the roulette table in Vegas. Cautionary Tales will be back in a moment. If we know anything, we know we're supposed to stick to a task. Psychologists have developed some attractive ideas about how success depends on practice and determination. There's Angela Duckworth, who's popularised the idea of grit, Carol Dweck's research on the growth mindset, and the late Anders Ericsson, the source of the 10,000-hour rule made famous by Malcolm Gladwell. There are subtleties to each of these research programmes, but the versions that have broken into popular culture are simple enough, like some motivational poster. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful people with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Isn't that great? It's often attributed to President Calvin Coolidge, but it's older than that. Claude Shannon, however, seems not to have gotten the message. He achieved so much, but if it stuck to a task, couldn't he have achieved so much more? Instead, he was playing with flamethrowing trumpets, juggling robots and silly poems. Oh, and the impossible task of beating the casino at roulette. For a junior academic, Ed Thorpe 
spent a surprising amount of time in casinos, using some ferocious mathematics and the best computers he could access at MIT, Thorpe had figured out that it was possible to beat the dealer at the casino staple, Blackjack, by keeping track of the cards that had been played and placing bets when the deck was offering favourable odds. Card counting is a familiar idea these days. It all started with Ed Thorpe. Thorpe's ideas were sophisticated enough to be worth publishing as an academic paper, which he did. But he wasn't content with that. He wanted to beat the casino too. To do that, Thorpe had to learn to spot crooked dealing, wear a disguise, count cards unobtrusively late into the night, and above all, make sure he didn't get killed. That was no idle worry. One day, Thorpe made a little too much money, and the casino spiked his coffee with something mysterious that blurred his vision for hours. He came back the next day, and the casino tried it again. But Thorpe wasn't scared. His idea to beat roulette was the boldest of all. He didn't have in mind a clever mathematical system. There were loads of them, and he knew that none of them work. Instead, he planned to build a computer that could predict where the ball would land. That would be hard even today, but at a time when computers were the size of pianos, this computer needed to be one that you could conceal inside your clothes. The world's first wearable computer, decades before the Fitbit, Google Glass or the Apple Watch. Thorpe had done some experiments on the timing of a roulette wheel with his wife, Vivian, a woman who was both intelligent and indulgent, as you'd need to be if you were married to Ed Thorpe. But to crack the problem, he needed to team up with perhaps the best gadgeteer in the world, Claude Shannon. Thorpe spent 20 hours a week at Shannon's house. He was in heaven. The basement was a gadgeteer's paradise. Motors, transistors, switches, pulleys, gears, condensers, transformers. I was now happily working with the ultimate gadgeteer. Shannon and Thorpe were able to time the spinning of the ball around an upper loop and the contrary motion of the wheel itself. With practice, they were able to start a clock within one hundredth of a second and then stop the clock after ten revolutions. That gave them both the speed and the position of the ball relative to the wheel and Newtonian physics could do the rest. The result of months of experimentation taught them that, using their computer to compute the path of the ball, they could predict that it would fall into one of five numbers, just over one-eighth of the wheel, and expect to be right 20% of the time. It seems a modest advantage, but the potential profits were enormous. All they had to do was to figure out how to miniaturize that computer making it small enough to slip into a pocket and carry into the casino undetected. It was an astonishingly audacious project, and a huge effort. For the final three weeks, Thorpe was effectively living at Shannon's house. But by August 1961, the device was ready. With their accomplices, Vivian Thorpe and Claude's wife, the mathematician Betty Shannon, the two gadgeteers then took it to the casinos. The Einstein of computer science was going to Las Vegas. Looking at Claude Shannon's career from age 33 onwards, it's hard to escape the conclusion that he might have achieved more, much more, if not for his habit of flitting between whimsical projects and typically setting them aside before they were finished. But some very smart people would disagree. Vannevar Bush arguably knew more than anyone about the way scientific progress occurred. He guided science policy for the United States during the Second World War, coordinating the efforts of 6,000 researchers. Bush said that great scientists should range widely and keep changing things up. In a speech to professors at MIT, Bush advocated breadth rather than depth. It is unfortunate when a brilliant and creative mind insists upon living in a modern monastic cell. Bush's idea was later backed up by scientific investigation of scientists themselves. In 1958, 
a remarkable study was launched by a young psychologist named Bernice Ageson. The study followed a group of promising researchers as their careers unfolded, periodically interviewing them, and continuing even after Ageson herself died in 1985. Four of the scientists eventually won Nobel Prizes. The findings of the Ageson study support Shannon's habit of flipping from one project to another. The scientists who'd most flourished over the decades had switched back and forth dozens of times. Once you start looking for this pattern, you see it everywhere. Isaac Newton is most famous for formulating the law of gravity, but made huge advances in mathematics and optics. He was the master of the Royal Mint, and was fascinated by economics, and devoted as much attention to alchemy as to anything else. Einstein published four astonishing scientific papers on four different topics, all in the same year, 1905. Charles Darwin worked simultaneously on the theory of evolution, the definitive two-volume work on barnacles, and a book about the human infant, begun while his son William was a baby, and published just in time for William Darwin's 38th birthday. Multiple projects aren't unusual at the highest level of science. They're the norm. Not only that, high-achieving scientists often have time-consuming side interests, pursuing photography, fine art or music, at or near a professional level. Nobel Prize-winning scientists are substantially more likely to have serious hobbies than other leading scientists who in turn are more likely to have them than the rest of us. The later part of Shannon's career fits right into this highly diverse pattern. But then, so does the early part. Back in 1939, shortly after his first thunderbolt, he wrote a note to an academic mentor. Dear Dr. Bush, Yes, Vannevar Bush, the man who knew everyone who mattered in mid-century American science, of course he was there to support the young Claude Shannon. Dear Dr. Bush, I've been working on three different ideas simultaneously, and strangely enough, it seems a more productive method than sticking to one problem. When Shannon wrote to Vannevar Bush, he wasn't working on engineering or logic. He was working on genetics. He knew nothing about the subject, but swiftly produced a completely new kind of algebra to describe and analyse genetic inheritance. The work was intriguing and wholly original, but needed developing. Did Shannon develop it? He did not. In fact, he never even bothered publishing it. Neither did he ever return to genetics. Later scholars lament the loss. His new algebra might really have advanced the field, but sticking with genetics might also have meant he never had his second thunderbolt on information theory. Between those two thunderbolts, Shannon didn't just switch fields. He lived a rich and complicated life. He married and then divorced within a year. He moved to Manhattan to spice things up. He played chess in Washington Square Park. He played clarinet. He loved the jazz scene in New York. He swam, played tennis, stayed up too late and played his music too loud. All this was happening when Shannon was at the peak of his intellectual powers. Shannon didn't just hit 35, then abandoned serious thinking in favour of playing around. Shannon was playing around all along. Maybe Shannon's love of frittering, I say frittering away his time, on juggling, or unicycling, or music, or chess, maybe that's not the reason he produced only two truly brilliant ideas. Maybe it's the reason he produced two truly brilliant ideas in the first place. Cautionary Tales will be back in a moment. I try hard to answer all the people who write to me. I get anxious knowing that the task is unfinished. Claude Shannon didn't feel that same compulsion to clear his inbox. He often left correspondence unanswered, then eventually cleared the decks through the use of a trash can marked letters I've procrastinated on for too long. That might seem a trivial thing, but I think it points to something deeper. Psychologists have identified a tendency called completion bias. If you've ever assembled a list of things to do, then ticked off all the easy ones while ignoring the important stuff, 
you've demonstrated completion bias. That apparently admirable tendency, persistence, the determination to finish what we start, well, it can be twisted and perverted. If we feel compelled to reach the finish line, we also feel tempted to choose a short racetrack. There's more at stake here than making ourselves feel better by cheating with our own to-do lists. Psychologists recently studied completion bias in a high-stakes setting, a hospital emergency department. They found that the busier the emergency room becomes, the more the doctors look for quick wins. The patients who aren't really very ill and can therefore be treated swiftly and ticked off the list. And this behaviour is counterproductive. The more seriously ill patients wait longer, of course. And the doctors start to slow down after working through a lot of fairly trivial cases. I expect we all know the feeling, but in their subconscious desire to see some work through to completion, doctors were harming the patients who were in greatest need. Claude Shannon's willingness to set aside projects starts to look like a strength rather than a weakness. Shannon certainly could focus, whether building information theory from scratch or building a wearable computer to beat roulette. Yet Shannon also seemed to have an inner confidence that allowed him to declare victory at any point that suited him. If a piece of work was not good enough to publish, fine, he was happy to leave it unpublished. That juggling paper is an example, but so too was his early work on genetic algebra. One of Claude Shannon's colleagues at Bell Labs praised him as a man of infinite courage. He was talking about Shannon's intellectual daring, a willingness to march into unknown territory, to begin the search for solutions to problems that seemed as unbeatable as roulette. But perhaps courage is not quite the right word to describe Shannon's approach. I prefer insouciance. Claude Shannon just wasn't worried. He didn't feel completion bias the way you and I feel it. He would walk away from any project at any time, without regret. And if he was willing to abandon a stalled project, where was the risk? And if there was little risk, why talk about courage? Shannon didn't need courage. He just needed the ability to move on. In August 1961, Claude and Betty Shannon met Ed and Vivian Thorpe in a hotel room in Las Vegas. Claude and Ed prepared the wearable computer system, which required both of them to operate. Shannon controlled the computer itself, the size of a cigarette packet with 12 transistors in it. He used his toes to trigger silent mercury switches hidden in his shoes. Thorpe, whose research into blackjack had given him plenty of experience hanging around in casinos, was the one who would place the bets. He had a radio receiver and an earpiece connected to a hair-thin steel wire. The earpiece played an ascending musical scale. Shannon would use the toe switches to time a rotation of the wheel and then the counter-rotation of the ball from the moment it passed a reference mark. Thorpe would hear the musical scale stop on a continuous note at the moment that Shannon finished timing the rotation and the pitch of that continuous note would indicate in which part of the wheel the ball was likely to drop. Thorpe still had a few seconds to place bets and collect the money. Thorpe knew from hard experience that they had to be careful. Their device wasn't illegal, it was far too inconceivable for that, but it wouldn't go down well if discovered. Beating the casino required more than just beating the game. That's why the Shannons and the Thorpes stroll up to the table separately, pretending not to know each other. It's why Claude Shannon's scribbling numbers down, distracting the floor manager from what he's really doing. All the while, he's gazing intently at the wheel from under his dark eyebrows, and his toe silently pressing and releasing the hidden control of the computer. And while Thorpe is standing at the other end of the table, cheerfully placing his bets, the earpiece is receiving the signals from Shannon's little computer and giving Thorpe predictions in the form of musical tones. And Thorpe is winning. Not everything goes smoothly. 
The fine wires to Thorpe's earpiece break several times, requiring a trip to the bathroom to fix them. At one moment, a horrified observer sees the earpiece come loose and thinks some strange insect is crawling out of Thorpe's ear. But fundamentally, the computer works perfectly. The chips are stacking up fast. At the end of the visit to Vegas, the Shannons and the Thorpes pondered their options. Ed Thorpe was bullish. He'd beaten the casinos before and was happy to do it again. But Betty, Claude and Vivian weren't so sure. It had been an exhilarating day, but a nerve-wracking one. And casinos simply banned players who seemed to win too much for any reason. So making the computer pay on a regular basis would require constantly concealing their identities. Thorpe was forced to admit they had a point. The computer clearly worked. And in theory, they could use it to make millions. But was it worth the effort and the risk? Shannon and Thorpe had had their fun, and they'd proved their point to their own satisfaction. And Claude Shannon had other projects to play with. So, after months of hard work, the world's first wearable computer was retired undefeated after a single trip to Vegas. Decades later, Thorpe reflected. I have always thought it was a good decision. When I first thought about writing this cautionary tale, I thought it would be a warning not to lose focus like Shannon did. I've changed my mind. Now I think Shannon and Thorpe are inspirational figures. The cautionary tale isn't a warning to keep your focus. Instead, it's a warning not to focus too much. Don't commit yourself so totally to a project that you lose heart, or lose sight of creative ideas, or lose your freedom to change course. There's one last lesson I think we can draw from Claude Shannon's ability to move on. In their Vegas hotel room, as Shannon equipped Thorpe with his earpiece and the fine connecting wires, Shannon had cocked his head to one side and smiled impishly. What makes you tick? It was a joke about the fact that Thorpe was plugged into a machine, but young Thorpe took it as a deep question from an older and wiser man. What did make him tick? Professional gambling? Academic mathematics? Or something else? But then, why choose? Shannon seemed to do it all, from academia to juggling. And so, in the end, would Ed Thorpe. You can find interviews with him, well into his 80s, still as sharp as anything, reminiscing about blackjack and academic mathematics and the hundreds of millions of dollars he eventually made after analysing the patterns in financial markets as one of the first quants. One of the intriguing ideas in Claude Shannon's mathematical theory of communication is that a message can be compressed to the precise extent that it is predictable. A movie can be compressed because each frame tends to resemble the previous one. A compression algorithm doesn't store the new frame. Instead, it stores a series of diffs, changes from the previous frame. Movies with lots of cuts or fast, dramatic movements are harder to compress. The same is true, more or less, with the way we remember our lives. Although the brain is not a video recorder and doesn't store diffs, it does compress memories by recalling the gist of an experience. If I get up in the morning at the usual time, eat my regular breakfast, walk the usual route to the station and catch the same train as always to the office, my brain doesn't trouble itself to remember much. The diffs aren't worth bothering with. A life that's too predictable creates few memories. That's what prisoners sometimes say about their years behind bars. They don't remember much, because it was all the same. Or the pandemic lockdown, for me and perhaps for you, involved sitting in the same seat doing the same thing every day. Life in lockdown was thin and forgettable. The opposite experience is a vivid vacation, somewhere packed with new sights and smells, the people, the language, the architecture, the food. These complex, rich experiences defy compression. The diffs are too big, so the memories are rich. Has it really only been 10 hours since I arrived, you ask yourself? It feels like a week. 
So if you want a full life, rich with memories, keep searching for new experiences. And like Shannon, don't be afraid to declare victory and start afresh. Shannon did everything. The jazz and the juggling and the chess. The intellectual journey from genetics to the Rubik's Cube. The jokey robots and the flame-throwing trumpet. And he really did turn upside down the way the world thought about digital information. Not once, but twice. Isn't twice enough? The key sources for this episode were Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman's biography of Claude Shannon, A Mind at Play, and Edward Thorpe's autobiography, A Man for All Markets. For a full list of references, see timharford.com. Cautionary Tales is written by me, Tim Harford, with Andrew Wright. It's produced by Ryan Dilley and Marilyn Rust. The sound design and original music are the work of Pascal Wise. Julia Barton edited the scripts. Starring in this series of Cautionary Tales are Helena Bonham Carter and Jeffrey Wright, alongside Nazar Alderazi, Ed Gochen, Melanie Gutteridge, Rachel Hanshaw, Cobner Holbrook-Smith, Greg Lockett, Masaya Monroe, and Rufus Wright. The show would not have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostock, Maggie Taylor, Daniela Lacan, and Maya Koenig. Cautionary Tales is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review. was Frittering Away Genius, a recent episode from Cautionary Tales with Tim Harford, an absolutely great podcast. And I want to thank all the people over in uh, Pushkin, Maggie and Tim that was dealing with there uh, for allowing us to broadcast that episode. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that. And I would really strongly advise go and wherever you get your podcast, go and uh, look up Cautionary Tales um, or either go on to timharford.com or go to pushkin.fm as well and check out all the other shows they have some absolutely great shows uh, on there um, I'm subscribed to a lot of them Revisionist History Cautionary Tales they're just some absolutely great shows and uh, there's a few shows there from Malcolm Gladwell as well that I listen to and they're just brilliant so thanks again to uh, Pushkin for allowing us to broadcast that episode I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did okay and moving along now let's have a chat about Google I.O. And I'm joined again by Dave O'Neill. Dave, how are you doing? Hey, all good. Good. Good to have you back on the show. Thank you. All right. Um, Dave, Google I.O. There, was there uh, a couple of weeks ago. So right. uh, their annual that they skipped last year. Uh, so it was good to have it back again this year. Yeah, I forgot uh, they skipped it completely last year because obviously they didn't plan for a virtual event then. So yeah, it is. Yeah, it's good to see it back. Yeah, and there. I suppose timing-wise, they didn't really have enough time to exactly. get completely into it last year. But uh, yeah, good to have it back in this year. Um, and look, we'll be just get straight into it and talk about what uh, some of the main things that were announced in it. Uh, yep. There was some nice things in it and some kind of odd things, but uh, uh, I suppose uh, they started off talking a bit about maps and everything, but I think we might go to that later on because they kind of devoted two sections to maps where they started off talking about it and then they kind of talked about it again later on when they were talking about Android. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's go forward into the first thing, the first main thing, which was uh, Smart Canvas coming to the Google Workspace. Um, so it's it really just a, an enhancement in collaborative, collaborative uh, document sharing and task sharing. Uh, but it, it did look good, actually. I, I was, I was kind of watching it going, you know what, for, for, if, if you're working on projects remotely, this actually seemed to be fairly well planned out. Yeah, I, it's it's like a, a, a project management management system. Um, 
in a sense. But uh, just using um, all the tools that Google have at their disposal, like, I mean, we, we've, they've had Google Docs now for since the noughties, and uh, Google Meet is a fairly new thing, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and, yeah. You know, and just collaborating all of that together, adding extra features and, and being able to format the the structure of the, the canvas to your needs. I mm. suppose it, it's it's very much needed in this day and age, but I have a feeling they kind of had something in mind for that probably a few years ago. Yeah, but they, 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 this just had to be brought forward at the moment yeah. now because of the way the remote working has gone and will exactly. probably stay that way for a good while anyway. So, yeah. uh, no, it, look, it looked very good. It looked very promising. And uh, I like the way that uh, if you're working on some of the, the project planning that you can integrate the video calls in with it. And mm-hmm. uh, they showed a thing called companion mode, which allowed the yeah. presenter to decide who are the presenters or who are kind of the the panelists if you want to call them that to um to to talk about the different stages of the project or what's going on so uh it, it actually looked quite good i was very interested in that actually same here love to give it a try absolutely yeah definitely i, I can see myself going through that and um i think other software companies that do a lot of project management, I can see them integrating elements of that into their pro- into their products. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, it's like, well I mean, out, yeah. So yeah, Google have really taken the lead in the the collaboration space um, yeah. of late. Yeah, they have. Yeah, so it looks and, quite uh, good. That's way. that's kind of their wheelbase. Yeah. So moving on, then they went into. Um, talking about the new lambda ai oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that was the, fantastic wasn't it yeah the the natural conversation and then the demos they did of uh talking with this lambda system and mm. it actually like you know yourself like if anybody who's used to using uh, smart speakers it's a very one session interaction where you ask it to do something and it comes back and says okay or I didn't understand or here's something I found on the web and gives you a bit of facts um, yeah. but this was actually full natural language cert- or t- chat where it was um, it was actually talking to you based on context and that was Bully, really cool. 100%. Like, yeah. obviously, they, they did caveat it with that. Uh, sometimes they get some nonsensical responses and stuff like that. It's still very much a work in progress. But uh, I know like, plenty if, if of that's humans. what we can expect, then it's going to be pretty smart. Yeah, you know? But I, I, know, I know plenty of humans, Dave, that you get a nonsensical response from as well. Uh, that's true that's true <laughs> yeah but uh, it, it did look really good and I really I really thought it was nice and uh, some of the things like the the ability of the natural language uh, recognition the one of the things they demoed of uh, just fast forward to the point in the video that shows us lions at sunset and yeah. it went to the YouTube video and brought you to that point that's like that that's really good search to be able to recognize images and video and mm. context as part of a video if you know yeah. what I mean that that's that that was really really it, it it's it's very hard to convey how hard something like that is to get right oh absolutely uh, yeah. 100% but uh, i mean google have been scanning videos for for 10 years now and they're mm-hmm. able to determine like whether a video is, is copyright or not based on just their scanning algorithms. Yeah. Um, so that was the first step. Like, so the thing is though, the, the Lambda system at the moment, from what I understand is only text-based. So it doesn't understand pictures, audio or video, but that's where they're hoping to go. Yeah. They were talking about this uh, multi-model approach and uh, yeah. the, uh, each of the models, you've got text, you've got video, you've got images, you've got audio. So mm-hmm. being able to put that across all the different models is, is, is the goal. Yeah, and and speaking of being able to put that across and what is going to enable them to do that, they then went on talking about their their uh, TPUs. So they the, they've got what is it version four of these out now that are yep. going to be powering That's their right. quantum computing. Um, so th- th- these things are like their I suppose they're mini computers that they make up for their to make a, a, a supercomputer out of them. And the, the the big thing that I took out of that was the um, they were saying that four thousand of these TPUs makes up a pod, and that <laughs> pod is an exaflop of processing power, which is the same as ten million laptops. The, the normal Crazy. laptops that we'd use on our desk every day. 
So that's a hell of a lot of computing power in there. And that's what they need to be able to bring this uh, Lambda system and all this uh, AI to fruition. Mm-hmm. Big time. And I like their um, their goals and how to build the, uh, what was it, the, the error-correcting qubits and yeah. uh, been able to build the error-correcting supercomputer. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it was quite impressive. Like, I mean, the fact that they've already got a few supercomputers operating their little refrigerators and stuff like that at the moment. But yeah. the, the fact that they're they're going this in this direction with quantum computing and error mm. correcting and stuff like that, I, they'll be unstoppable. They they yeah. will. I'm I'm scared for other companies like Apple and Microsoft because they're not in that kind of space. And if Google want to keep all this stuff for themselves, you know. Yeah, they're they're nowhere near it. They're nowhere near the space. Mm. No, not at all. Yeah. Right. Uh, move along, Dave. Now, they, they then talked about privacy, which I had to kind of giggle at because they talked about privacy and this privacy by design. And um, what was the other fr- phrase they used? Like uh, secure, secure by default. Secure by default. And I think this is the first time I've ever heard Google talk in those terms. And consider no, they've, they've, they've dedicated a few I.O. segments to it before and in the previous years. But um, yeah, but it seemed as though everything they were talking about now at this time, they really latched onto this privacy thing and as, as though it was just a new next big thing that they had to be talking about and be seen to be doing. And right. I didn't take them seriously, being honest with you. Well, true. But you see. We all know that Google's primary business, its income is from ads, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's how it you know, makes its bread and butter. That's how it can run YouTube at a loss. Yeah. You know, with companies like Apple making a big shout about privacy, mm-hmm. um, I suppose they had to do something, didn't they? Yeah. And they, they might, there was one part of the, um, the keynote where um, your one talking about the, the, the privacy part, she was saying that we never use personal data, uh, blah, blah, blah. We don't yeah. use Gmail. We don't use yeah. this and that and the other. There was a time they did, though. Yeah, where Gmail was, like, the whole funding of Gmail was by scanning through your your um, your um your emails, finding yep. data inside them so that they could tailor ads to you. That's right. Uh, and it was like as though they just kind of wiped out history of all the stuff they were doing and said, oh, no, it's all private. Everything's privacy by design. But they're still taking your data because that's what that's what powers search and adverts. Yeah, they're not selling it to anybody else, but they're using it for their own gain. Yes, they're monetizing exactly, yeah. you somehow, and that's and they kind of said that. They kind of said that's how we power the 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 web. Yeah, yeah. by with ads. Yeah, they they kind of did say that. And funny enough, Apple have said things like that before themselves. Uh, they've they've actually said things like that. Your purchase history or anything like that is only ever used for tailoring searches, like in your music and everything like that. To to down to like the, if they give you suggestions of what music to listen to, it's mm. based on your listening history. So right. this is kind of what Google are saying they're doing now as well. Yeah, but mm. don't forget as well that Apple will always announce a bunch of stats and stuff like that at the beginning of their keynotes, and they mm. get those stats because they're looking yeah. at what you're doing as well. Now, albeit exactly. they're not taking your personal data, but they are. Mm. Um, collecting data from you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So everyone's doing yeah. Part of these privacy anyway was uh, new password tools in Google Chrome for being able to yeah. like have a password manager that you could import from other password managers into. Right. Um, it'll warn you if your password has been compromised on other mm-hmm. websites. Mm. Now, Edge have already implemented that into their browser and yes. it works. Um, I've been warned that I'm using an old password. I'm not going to say on which site because, you know, mm. once you go hacking me, but it was an old password I used that had been compromised probably in the MySpace uh, leak long ago uh, from an old account. And when I visit the website, it gives me a warning, change your, change your password. But I haven't really because I just don't care about the account on that site. Yeah. It's not an important website, let's put it that way. Yeah. But it works. One of the privacy things that I did like was that they brought into Google Photos to be able to lock um, some photos into it, like put them into a locked folder so that yeah. they don't come up in suggestions or memories and things like that. Because there been, are. It would have been nice if they gave the real kind of examples that people would use them for, though. <laughs> yeah, but let's say, like, I, I know I've been in certain places and I've taken a picture of the back of, say, a router to get a password. Right, because yeah. sometimes you you can't see into the back of it where it's located, and you take a picture of the back of it, and then you forget to delete that, and you don't want that showing up as a memory. 
So okay, mm. that's the most secretive photo you have in your phone, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. No, it is definitely a yeah. well needed feature in this day and age. Yeah. Mm, it is definitely right uh, going on then in terms of search uh, they talked about mum and uh, this was the, the the new AI to improve the search and again we're back to this multi-model approach and mm. multilingual uh, so that they can translate like if you search for something in one language and they find results on different pages in other languages then they'll uh, they'll bring that to you, um, and it did look good. The search the search stuff they did, where they were talking about hiking in Mount Fuji and different things, and being able to take a picture of something and get suggestions based on it. It was uh, it was quite quite good actually. There seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of again, it's all down to this AI and the quantum exactly. computing and everything, and that they're doing uh, just having the power behind it to be able to do this a lot faster get the results to you faster from different sources. Mm. Mm. They, they did show a thing about um, AR in search and I, I just had to ask why? What was the point of it? I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't get the augmented reality stuff at the moment. Like if you can, if you can, they were showing somebody um, doing some uh, gymnastics and it was and like you could just watch that on the screen anyway. You don't have to overlay the background of the camera onto what they're doing. You can just show it to them. Probably in better quality too. Well, the thing about AR is that it's been around a while now. Um, mm. It might have a very practical use in the future, but at the moment it is very much a gimmick, I think. Yeah, very limited use cases. Mm. Yeah. Next part was maps. And okay. Right, so a load of the things that they introduced in maps was um, they're talking about eco-friendly routes um, so to give you a better route to where you're going and mm-hmm. um, safer routes so if there was any kind of congestion or traffic issues or crashes or anything on the way right. uh, then they talked about showing sidewalks and traffic lights uh, or like walkways kind of thing, crossings cycle lanes and stuff yeah. like that too yeah. Um, one of the things I did like was that they were going to start highlighting points of interest based on the time of the day. So, oh. yeah, so cafes at lunchtime or um, like restaurants later in the evening. I thought that was cool. Mm. Yeah, it, it can be good. But sometimes like, you know, relying on Google to do all that st- stuff for you, like, you know, uh, it's it's not always convenient for everybody and everybody's use case. Like, so, for example, people who work nights, for example, you know what I mean? How is that going to come yeah. in handy for them? Their days are completely flipped. Yeah, so I you'd, suppose, you'd yeah. wonder if, if, if that feature can be kind of pulled back a bit or turned off. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it can. I'm sure you can tailor that. Mm. Mm. Right. Let's move on to the main thing. So, Dave, the the big one, which was Android 12, that yeah. I thought they were going to give a lot more details in this. Um, it seemed to be just the main focus was this of this was like that we can take the colors out of your your desktop screen and our photo and and produce a color palette of it. They're, they're I, I don't mind a bit of customization, mind you, but like, uh, look. It does seem that it's more of a visual overhaul than uh, most um, Android releases have been uh, in the last number of years. Um, most Android releases, I guess, have been more based on certain like small features and, and um, code optimizations and stuff like that. But this time they're, they're doing a big visual overhaul. And I think it's long yeah. overdue in a way because Android has looked the same since, I, I yeah. don't know, since Nougat or Oreo. Yeah, it is. It's a good while now before they've done any kind of major mm. visual overhaul. Um, but the the one thing about the the color palette picker is that it might lead to better designs on customized phones. That if they're picking a palette of colors that they think that are going to go together, they're obviously yeah. a, a, a much more professional at picking complementary colors. So it means that you're not going to get somebody's phone where they've got hideous kind of contrasting colors or or competing colors on the screen if this thing chooses it for them so yeah but i got i got the uh, impression as well that they're going to let you choose your own color palette as well i think well we'll be back to so maybe there's an option them. where you can have a pickup off from your your wallpaper or maybe you can design your own color palette yeah and you know what happens when you let people design their own color palette hey leave me alone <laughs> i've seen your phone dave 
it's red and black that's all yeah. I care about so yeah. other than that there was a lot of um, there was a lot of like as you say visual stuff like you know the console centre just kind yeah. of better laid out it looked quite good um, there were borrowed a few um, a few features from um, the iPhone uh, from yeah. iOS such as like an indicator when your mic or camera is in use uh, the ability to shut off access to those with one click uh, which is great and yeah. um, the, they really again went, went forward again on this privacy by design secure by default thing mm-hmm. uh, they really put a, a big thing together on that and then they went on to talk about the new watchOS and very interesting one here, Dave, on this, that they have partnered with Samsung and Google, uh, the Wear OS and Tizen are now the same thing. Oh, OK. I must have missed that bit as well. I kind of skipped over little bits and pieces, to be honest with you. But yeah. um, I know Wear OS, though, I can say that it has been um, neglected. Um, yeah. And mm. it's it's Tizen is better, basically. Like That's why Samsung has been using Tizen and other yeah. um other watches and uh, that would normally like whose manufacturers normally use Android for the phone would be using their own OS because Wear OS just hasn't really been keeping up. It hasn't, no. And no. Uh, uh, they've obviously kind of cross pollinated with Samsung on this now. And yeah. because they bought Fitbit, they're bringing that into the whole ecosystem as well. So uh, the new Wear OS is going to have all the Fitbit uh, features brought into it as well. Awesome. And uh, if they really put their um, energy into this, it will become fairly decent, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. Okay, Dave, we're nearly out of time for the week. The the last thing they showed then was this uh, demo of this Project Starline, which was yeah, like yeah, the 3D I was, I was video call. That up. Yeah, that yeah. was pretty cool. And, um, the, it, it looked quite good, but it was very hard to gauge because you're looking at something in 2D on a flat screen yourself, a presentation yeah. on a video of a video. And it was, it was, I, I, I could get the idea that they did 3D capturing of the people, but I yeah. couldn't figure out how they were presenting it. Was it a, a, a trick of 3D imagery based on where your head is looking from? Or was it some sort of hologram boot? I don't know. I could, I couldn't, uh, I, cu- I couldn't figure out how they were doing it, but it looked good. There was definitely some depth to the screen or whatever yes. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So was it some kind of hologram system or was it uh, some sort of 3D layering effect that was going on? Yeah, it's, it's really tough to say and how, how much depth there is to that area behind the screen. It would be interesting to see that. Yeah. Um, you mm. just never know in this day and age what they could be capable of. But it did. You could kind of see, though, that there was a certain... 3D element to it, even though, even on a 2D video screen that you were yeah. watching it on, you could kind of see that it did look pretty cool. Yeah, I, I would prefer they'd given more details on that or a bit, bit yeah. more of a, a, a heavier demo on it, like a more in depth. But I, it does look like something that could be quite cool. I'm looking forward to seeing a bit more details on that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you saw how much data it took, uh, gigabits yeah. per second, to transfer yeah. it over. So they had to develop some compression to make it work over a standard internet connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the whole thing though with the Google I/O that kind of for me was everything they showed was oh this will be coming later in the year this will be coming later in the year with no kind of defined timelines or commitment to it it was it yeah. was a very Googleish thing of it is we'll, we'll just talk about a load of stuff without anything they, concrete yeah they do that a lot and they've do, been doing that for years obviously they have the definite stuff like android and stuff but they, yeah. when when they talk about uh, certain emerging technologies that they've been working on like you know surprise drops and stuff like that it, it is kind of open-ended as to when it's going to become in mm. use in the mainstream you know they're they're just kind of giving you a preview of what's going to come in the next five years or whatever yeah yeah there's no timelines at all for no. some of the things they were talking about and everything else was later in the year so, but again, remember it's a developer conference. It's, it's yep. aimed at developers. It's kind of given a a, a a kind of a sneak peek at what's happening, what's yeah, coming. Exactly. Mm. All right, Dave. We continue the show again here. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining me, and um, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time. And we might be talking about Apple because the uh, Apple WWDC will be out by then. So we might have some uh, some updates about what happened on that. So uh, thanks again, Dave, and we'll talk to you quite soon. 
All right, goodbye. You've been listening to Tech Post, a Limerick Post podcast in association with Limerick City Community Radio. If you have any tech questions or topics you'd like to see covered, or if you have any local tech news that you want featured, please email techpost at limerickpost.ie. show is produced by Eric Fitzgerald, and theme music is kindly supplied by Limerick's Dylan Flynn and the Dead Poets, and you can find their great music on Spotify or Apple Music. You can follow Limerick Post on Twitter at Limerick Post, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you subscribe to get other great podcasts from the Limerick Post.